Folks, uh, we, we sang a great hymn there, and especially on this day, I, don't, I doubt you thought about it when you woke up this morning, but today is Thursday, Ascension Day. It's 40 days after the resurrection, uh, that we, 40 days after Easter, therefore, that Jesus Christ ascended, and we celebrate His ascension. The ascension of Christ is a very important doctrine. I, when I was in seminary at a preaching professor, it was about that high, a little Welshman that I just grew to love very much, Dr. Gwen Walters, and he, he always said, gentlemen, do not speak merely of a resurrected Lord. He is exalted. And so we should not speak of him merely as resurrected, but a resurrected and ascended. Uh, so the great exaltation of Christ included not only his coming back to life, but is taking a place at God's right hand. And that has tremendous implications for us because he told us he goes to prepare a place for us. So his ascension is his going to get the place ready for us and to get us ready for the place. And he does that by his ascension. He also goes to rule over all the world. So now everything has been handed into his, uh, into his, onto his throne. God has appointed him as judge of all things, and he now is actively ruling. He holds the scepter and wears the crown. He's in charge of every square inch of the universe, and he rules every nanosecond of time. Also, he, he, his ascension means for us that we have an intercessor. We have someone who intercedes for us, who goes before us, who prays for us all the time, and he has the Father's ear. You think Jesus has influence with the Trinity? <laughs> yes. And his ascension means that our flesh has now been taken into the very councils of the Trinity himself, and we're beautifully represented there. His ascension uh, also means that uh, he will be coming back to consummate his glory and his rule. So we know that he's coming back to get us. So today is a day we ought to be all be extremely grateful for. And turning to this passage in Matthew 25 is very appropriate because here uh, Jesus is telling the third parable, although this is not so much a parable as it is a teaching, but it has some uh, language in it, uh, at least a, a little bit of an allegory there that's helpful. But this is his third parable in Matthew 25 to tell us about the judgment that's coming at the second coming of Jesus Christ. You say, why do you tell three parables? Each one of them has a little something to add to the total picture. And of course, in Jesus' day, people didn't have watches. Uh, they weren't so neurotic about every second of their lives. They weren't thinking about time is money. And they could sit back and contemplate and hear three stories and get the full picture of what the return of Jesus was going to be like. And it's important for us to do that here on these Thursday mornings. So let's dig in to uh, Matthew 25, verse 31, through the end of the chapter, verse 46, and see this final parable of the judgment. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All right. Uh, There are some distinctive elements in this version of the second coming of Christ uh, among the three tellings of it in Matthew 25. And certainly we'll see it in this first verse in verse 31 when we see the glory of the Son of Man. Here he's portrayed not just as a master coming back uh, to, to the tenants, uh, the, the, uh, the servants. He's not just portrayed as a bridegroom, but here is the glorious Son of Man. That's one distinctive of, of this version. The other, of course, we'll get into it in a few moments, is the evidence by which the, the peoples are separated on the right and the left and the nature of that evidence. Uh, we've seen with the foolish virgins that they were to be prepared and we saw that Jesus didn't tell us exactly what that oil in the, in the lamp would be. Uh, but we know we're to be prepared. But here we see something very concrete about the lifestyle of the people who are segregated out from among the sheep and goats. So uh, we see here something very helpful for us to consider. Now let's dive in, first of all, in these first three verses, 31, 32, 33. And we see here that Jesus will come to judge. Once again... Jesus is showing very clearly this is going to happen. It gives us the nature of all of history. You know, I don't know if you've thought about what it would be like to live forever in this life uh, and the consequences of that. What if everybody here knew there was no such thing as death? But we live in a sinful world, a broken world, a violent world. What if there were no consequences of death for anything that we did? Ooh, it would be hell. So there's a sense in which our death uh, helps us live uh, in in somewhat of a uh, a wise way. We know that there's there's an end to our lives uh, so that we don't wreak violence against one another. We know that uh, there's an end to our life, so uh, we're careful how we manage our relationships. We could go at any moment, and death can visit us. So we live always, if we're wise, in view of our imminent death. And we manage things here according to how we want to leave here. That's what a wise man does. He sees down the line. He sees beyond his own own grave and manages life here for for 
the sake of what it's going to be like after he's gone. Well, the same is true with the second coming of Christ. It focuses all of history. It lets us know there's an end and there's accountability. And we live in light of that. It focuses us and it's good for us to know it. It's been decreed from all eternity that it would happen. But it was also God's pleasure to reveal to us that it was going to happen. So you always have to ask yourself the question, why does Jesus tell us this piece of future history? We don't know everything about the future, but we know this. Why do we know this? Because it's useful to us. Everything in the Bible is useful for teaching and correction and rebuking and training in righteousness so that we may be fully equipped. So this repetitive teaching of the second coming is to emphasize to us you need to live your life in light of these things. Jesus will come to judge. Make no mistake about it. If you know that the IRS uh, is going to examine your returns, of course, this year it's too late <laughs> unless you've got an extension. But if you know you're going to be audited, are you not extremely careful with all your documentation, not only being honest, but you've got all your documentation. You can prove everything. You're ready for uh, the revenue to come, see, to come see you. Well, here it is. You have accountability at the end. We should be living in a way that is ready, watchful, diligent, as we saw in the last week's parable, working hard for the master so that when he comes, our accounts are in order. Now notice, first of all, verse 31, what we're being taught is that here is that he will be glorious. He's not going to come back and sneak into history. He's not going to be some figure, uh, you know, in Eastern Europe or in the Middle East or something like that where you don't know who he is. No, he's coming back in great glory. And here, what Jesus is adding to uh, what we've seen already is a, uh, a citation, really, of a, an Old Testament concept that we've looked at before in Daniel. You might want to turn there uh, on page 1600. And on page 1600 is Daniel 7. And Daniel has a vision. He says, As I looked, verse 9, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Sounds like Revelation 1, doesn't it? His throne was fiery flames. His wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. As I looked, the beast was killed, and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There's the key phrase, a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is what Jesus is saying. The master that's coming back, the bridegroom coming to check out, the, the, see whether the bridesmaids are wise or foolish. He is the Son of Man that's revealed in Daniel. He's coming back with all of His glory. He's been given the right to judge by His Father. This is the one who's coming. Not some second-rate uh, human judge. This is the judge of all the earth. 
And you'll find this referred to several times in Matthew. You, I put some verses there for you. Chapter 16, 27. Chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus refers to the same sort of things. Now this is so wonderful for us on Ascension Day. Because we just think back 43 days ago. When we were in, some of us were in Good Friday services and we, we were contemplating our Savior up on a cross being completely humiliated. And here, anyone who knows Jesus Christ and admires Him and loves Him cannot help but take great delight today because the one who was derided and mocked and that, upon whose head they place a crown of thorns and who was nailed to the tree is now ruling gloriously in infinite glory. And he will come back and make his glory known to all the earth, thus vindicating his own name and vindicating the name of his people who follow him. This is a great day of uh, true delight for all believers. He will be glorious. Now, in verse 32, notice a very important principle. It says, before him will be gathered all the nations. And here we learn he will gather every human being. Now in Joel chapter 3, you'll see this, that all the nations come before His throne. You'll see that in Zechariah 14.5. And certainly at the end of the book, in Revelation chapter 20, you see that all the nations are coming before Him. Gentlemen, there's not one nation, not one tribe, not one language of any age that will be excused from the greatest size of Jesus Christ. Every single human being, with no exceptions, will appear before Him. And all are accountable to Him. It doesn't matter what religion they hold to. It doesn't matter what they've heard or they haven't heard. Everybody is accountable to the one who created all things and for whom all things were created. He's not just our Lord by virtue of redemption. He's our Lord by virtue of the eternal counsel of God and by virtue of creation. He's been the king of creation since the beginning. So everything in creation must answer to Him. This is how great your Savior is. So maybe you landed in the Christian religion because your mom and daddy taught you. You thought, well, you know, that's what I got. Some other people got some other religion. No. In God's providence, He blessed you with your history so that you would hear the gospel. But the truth is, He's the universal King of all the nations, whether they know it or not. And they will account to Him. So all of these rogue nations uh, who are violating the Word of God and think they're getting by with it, they are not, including the one that you and I live in. We're not getting by with it. Every nation, every individual will appear before Him so that individuals will be judged and nations will be judged. Ethnic groups will be judged. How they have responded to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will gather every human being. Notice thirdly, in verses 32 and 33, He will separate the people. He will do the separation. He will send His angels to do it, as we read in Matthew 13 in a couple of parables there, the angels will come and segregate out the people and he will separate them, we are told here, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, uh, in first century, you realize that uh, a shepherd would often have sheep and goats. He wouldn't just have one type of animal uh, in his, under his care. And during the day, the sheep and the goats would graze together. But at night, the goats would come uh, usually uh, in, into a warmer place. The sheep were able to be in, in a, you know, didn't have to be under cover or near a fire or something like that. So normally you'd separate them at night. And a shepherd would 
separate them. We know how the sheep would follow. He'd simply call them by name. And so often they would sing, and the sheep would recognize the shepherd's voice and follow him and just come right out of the flock. So every night he would typically separate them. So this was a very familiar image to Jesus' learners on that day. And he said, just like you, you've seen that happen many times, these sheep and goats, the, the goats would have the darker hair. The sheep weren't always white, but they were lighter in color. And you'd see them together, and then at night, whomp. And you've seen that many, many times, he said. Well, when the great Son of Man comes, the same sort of separation is going to take place among all the nations, just like sheep and goats. And I've mentioned to you before, I saw something about 20 years ago where somebody had cloned or in the laboratory taking, taking an egg and a sperm from a sheep and a goat and created a geep. And uh, I make the comment often that there are no geeps in the kingdom, only sheep and goats. There's no middle ground. Jesus is going to divide perfectly, and he's going to divide completely. There'll be no animal standing in the middle. I don't know what I am, man. Uh, or Jesus won't be saying, oh, I can't make up my mind about you. No, they will be separated distinctly. And no other division will make any difference. It won't matter whether you're rich or you're poor. It won't matter whether you have a college education or you don't. It won't matter whether uh, you are a prominent person or a street person. It won't matter whether you're uh, Chinese or Hispanic. It won't matter whether you're African American or European American. It will make no difference at all. The, the differences that we establish among men in this world will be completely irrelevant. There will be a dividing point that has nothing to do with that. It will have only to do with what, with what Jesus is teaching here, which becomes extremely important to us. Because now we're told that all of history is going to be consummated on a great day that all flesh shall see together. When the Son of Man comes back in all of His glory to rule forever and ever in the brilliance and radiance of His kingdom, and He will divide those who will be on His right and those on His left. We need to know what this is all about. And so we turn to verses 34 through 40. And here we see that Jesus will reward the righteous. He will reward the righteous. There's a distinction that's being made here between the righteous and the unrighteous. We might even say the converted and the unconverted. And that's all that matters. Do you have the new birth or do you not have the new birth? Are you trusting in Him or are you not trusting in Him? Are you in repentance or are you not in repentance? All, all these are really saying the same thing. That you have the blessing of God upon your life or you don't. And this distinction will be made very clear at the last day. And we do not know when He's going to return. So that sense of urgency focuses us. There's coming a day, and that focuses everything that we do. We're living not just toward our death, we're living toward the second coming of Christ. And that urgency ought to be part of our lives every day. First of all, notice how He shall reward the righteous with His presence. Then the king will say to those on his right, those are the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Now those of you who, have been, uh, who are at second and who have been with us on Sunday mornings know that uh, we've been looking at this word blessing in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's take just a quick look at it on page 2262. Ephesians 1, same word for blessed here. 
is used in Ephesians 1.3. There are a couple of different words for blessing. The word for uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The Beatitudes, that's not the, quite the same word. This is a word that simply means a good saying. Eu logos. It's eu logos. Eu means well or good. Logos means word. So it's a good word from which we get the word eulogy. So uh, it's just that God has put a good word on us. And look what Paul says about this blessing. First of all, he says, Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So give a good word about God. Bless Him. Praise Him. Why do we bless Him? Because He blesses us. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we're blessing God because He has blessed us. So that's one definition of what it means to be a sheep. You are a man who is blessed. Now, we know that we speak often about our being blessed and what we mean by that is, you know, we made a really good sale yesterday and the commissions were more than we ever expected or our children just graduated from college and we got a big raise because of that or maybe two or three weddings are over, only one more to go or something like that for some of you guys. Uh, we're blessed men or we have a wife that doesn't hit us or, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, you think of many things about your life that causes you to say, man, I'm a blessed man. And usually we mean by that somewhat humbly, you know, I'm, I'm not worthy of all the good things that have happened to me. But as we've seen, for those of us who've been studying this text, uh, that's, that's not even close to what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a blessing that transcends those temporal blessings. When we think of his blessing us, normally, even as his people, we think about temporal blessings, and they are from God, and they are blessings, but we think of temporal blessings, which by comparison to what Paul has to say, are very superficial. So we just don't think very deeply about how blessed we are. Here's what Paul says, verses 4, 5, and 6. You have been blessed by being elected from all eternity and elected to be his sons. Now there's a blessing for you. Eternal adoption as God's children, heirs, according to promise. Now there's a blessing. Then in verse 7, you'll see we're blessed because God the Son has come and shed His blood to redeem us and to buy us out of bondage of sin, to buy us out from under the wrath of God. The blood of Christ has been shed for us. We're blessed men. And then in verse 10, you see that we are blessed because the eternal plan of God to bring all things into union at the feet of Jesus Christ has been revealed to us. It's available to everybody, but by God's Spirit, He has enabled us to see that plan and to understand it, that all of history is moving in this direction so that we can get in conformity, in step with this big plan. And then in verses 11 through 14, we see the work of the Spirit in sealing us forever so that we're preserved, we're marked, we're labeled as the people of God. The one who ordains whatsoever comes to pass has ordained that we're His people and now has sealed us with His Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, there are some blessings. So, from now on, when you say, I'm a blessed man, just realize what you're saying. Yeah, you're blessed. And think of these deepest blessings, these highest blessings. He said, every blessing in the heavenly realms has been given to you. Now, back to Matthew 25. This is what Jesus is saying. Come... You who are blessed by my Father. You've been given these eternal blessings by the Trinity Himself. Eternal election, unconditional upon your performance. 
redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ, the revelation of the historical plan of God, and eternal sealing so that nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're blessed. Enter into His joy. And indeed, His presence is our joy. The joy of the believer is always, fundamentally, simply having Jesus. The presence of Christ, as the old liturgy says, is the joy of every condition. No matter what condition you're in, the joy of it is His presence. And at the end, He says, finally to you, finally, come. Come into the Father's presence, you who are blessed. Secondly, uh, He rewards us with His kingdom. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do you realize this has been on God's heart from all eternity? To establish a dominion and a kingdom that you will rule over. And even though you rebelled against Him and raised your fist to Him and turned your back on Him, He went out and redeemed you and bought you back and then put you back on thrones so that you will rule all things. And once again in Ephesians chapter 2, you see not only has Jesus ascended to the highest place, but He says, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, You have been raised with Christ to the highest place. So you have spiritually ascended, and one day your very bodies will ascend to be with Him in the highest place. So rejoice. You have a kingdom that has been prepared for you from all eternity. Thirdly, notice that you are rewarded with this amazing commendation. You are commended by the Lord. The Son of Man. Can you imagine that? What if President Obama comes to Memphis and we we pack the Liberty Bowl and everybody's there. More than 50,000 people, 80,000 people because they got them down in the field too. It's just packed. And he calls out your name. He says, come on up here to the platform. And he just begins to list all the good things that you've done. You say, man, well, that's, that's impossible. That's a fairy tale. Well, let me tell you something. That is a fairy tale. You can forget that one. But, uh, but this is not that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rule 10,000 times 10,000 angels, spiritual beings, and saints, and He will commend you before them and before His face. The joy, the shock, the surprise, the elation that goes with being commended by one like that. None of us can possibly imagine that's what's happening here upon His return. We will be rewarded with His favor and His commendation. Now notice in verses 35 and 36 why this is. It's for our deeds of mercy to Him. He says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Six things here. Six human needs. And he says, you did them for me. Now you say, uh, you may say, these people, (laughs) they really didn't do very much for him, preacher. All you have to do is look at Calvary's cross. Where were these people? 
when he was in his greatest hour of need? Were they feeding him, clothing him when he was naked on the cross? Were they visiting him when he was in prison? No, sirree, they fled like scalded dogs. They got the heck out of Dodge. They had nothing to do with it. So how in the world did his disciples uh, get rewarded? Well, this is important for us to remember before we even get started on this. Uh, Jesus forgives sins. It's amazing that when you get your commendation, you know, if you, if you were still in your sinful state, you'd be ready for the other shoe to drop. Okay, so there are a few good things you might say about me. Now, okay, let's get to the real business. What is the real complaint here? The charge you have. Gentlemen, this is what you're going to have to realize. Your old broken down, sinful, self-condemning approach is not going to work. It's going to be out of accord with reality. Because you, you fail to realize fully what he did for us on the cross. He canceled all those things. They're gone. There is no other shoe to drop. That's the amazing thing about being his lamb. When you put your trust in him, that shoe doesn't drop because that shoe doesn't exist. It's gone. And so let's remember that as we look at this. So the disciples, including, think about Peter in John chapter 21. You know, he goes fishing. He doesn't know what else to do. He knows he's completely blown it. He's betrayed his Savior. There's no possible way that the resurrected Savior is going to use him or have much to do with him. And Jesus goes out and pursues him and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And painfully, Peter says three times, you know all things, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, okay, feed my lambs. So Jesus is saying two things. Number one, Peter, you're completely forgiven. Our love is restored with each other. And secondly, there's something for you to do. And out of this love, you're to act out of it. And that's what sheep do. Sheep fundamentally, by God's converting grace, are able to receive this message and believe it, receive it and accept it, receive it and enjoy it. And when you do, something's going to start coming out of your life. And it's the very things that are talked about here, as we'll see. So let's look at it. He's saying, you did these things for me. And they're shocked. And they would have been more shocked if he had said it uh, but on, on the day that we're celebrating today, the day of His ascension. They would have been more shocked if He were bragging on them for how they took care of Him. Because the one thing they knew is they didn't take good care of Him. But notice what He's saying here. He's talking about his, their treatment of Him when He's really talking about his treatment, their treatment of each other, as we'll see in a moment. Because He says, Inasmuch as you did this to the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. Now, this is an amazing thing, and I put several texts here which show the amazing intimacy that Jesus Christ has with His people. And the classic text here would be probably the one in Acts 9.4. And we've mentioned this here before. You know, when Paul was on, his road, on the road to Damascus to go persecute some more Christians, and he had already put many into prison, and some of them had been put to death, and Paul was quite proud of it because he thought that he was stamping out heresy. He's on his way to Damascus to gather up some more of these people when Jesus Christ himself personally intervenes on behalf of the rest of the church, not just the church in Damascus that's getting ready to be persecuted, but the church that yet hasn't been called out of sin throughout Europe and Asia. God has great mercy upon all those people and He sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to stop Paul dead in his tracks. Saul, Saul, 
Why do you persecute me? And there in that text is probably the classic text to show how Jesus takes up the cause of His people so personally that when you lay a hand on God's people, you lay a hand on God. When you persecute Christ's people, you're persecuting Christ personally. He takes it personally. It is a personal offense against Him. Why? Because He's the head and we're the body. We're one. He's the vine. And we're the branches. And you can't strike one of the branches without the vine going, ouch. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. And He doesn't like anybody beating up on His woman. He doesn't like anybody beating up on His bride. He takes it personally. He's intimately related to us. This is the amazing thing about this text. Is that He completely invests Himself in us, so that if anyone does you a favor because you're a believer, if anyone does you a favor because they're a believer, they're going to hear about it on the last day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, to anyone who blesses a man because he walks with Jesus. That's how close your relationship to Jesus is if you're a follower of His. He's completely invested in your welfare. Woe be to anybody who lays a hand on you. They lay a hand on Jesus. And that doesn't turn out very well for anybody who does that. You need to realize the status that you have with Christ. It's absolutely phenomenal. And we think about it way too infrequently. And we think of ourselves as being outsiders and cast out and ignored And we have pity parties for ourselves. I'm telling you something, gentlemen. You're a brother of Jesus. And you're more than that. He's in you. And you're in Him. So He commends us for deeds of mercy, surprisingly, to Him. Now, let's take a little theological break here for a moment. We need to address a question. Because it looks as though He's saying... uh, you have earned your way into my presence. And I want to turn to a a verse of Scripture with you. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, and this would be on on page 2265. I was referring to this a moment ago about our ascension to the right hand of Christ. That concludes verse 7, but look with me at verse 8. And here, Ephesians 2, 8, 2265. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, so it's by grace. That means, grace means that it's not by your doing. It's gracious. It's condescending. It's something you don't deserve. It's gra- That's what gracious means. It's something you don't deserve. So he's saying that salvation and this whole act of your being ascended to the right hand of God ha- doesn't have anything to do with your earning it. It's by grace. And then he says, furthermore, this is the way God has graciously saved you. It's through faith, not through your works. So he says it's by grace. It's through your simply trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That's what faith is all about. And then look what he says about faith. In case, in case you were holding out some little reserve of boasting for yourself. Well, yeah, it is through faith. But you know, I had to believe. Paul goes on to say, and this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God. Oh, well, excuse me. So you mean even the faith I had was given to me? Yes, sir. So, yes, you're saved through the instrumentality of faith. Faith is what connects you to Christ. And through that faith, then, you are brought into union with Him and all the blessings of the heavenly realms devolve upon you. But that faith was given to you as a gift in your new birth. So when you received new birth, in that seed of new birth was the gift of faith that you exercised. You did it, but you did it because it was given to you. That's how gracious God is. Even the part you do, He gives to you. So he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And of course what he means there, there's not, not that there's no boasting at all, but that you don't boast about yourself. As Paul says, man, never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. So the boasting now goes completely to him. That's the reason this is so vital for you to know. Because when you know this now, your praise is directed solely to him and not to yourself. So it's an issue of doxology. It's an issue of worship. Then look what he says. This is the main point I want us to to notice. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. So, yes, we are His workmanship. He made us. He redeemed us. And He did it not only without our help, but He did it contrary to our efforts. We were trying to go the opposite direction. And He saved us by His grace. We are His workmanship. And part of his workmanship is not just to get us out of the fire, but it's his workmanship to make us ministers of good works, servants who do good things. That's part of his workmanship. So just as surely as he saves you, justifies you through faith in Jesus Christ, which is a gift, so also... He saves you for sanctification and lays out the good works you're to perform. It's kind of like when you're five years old, you think you know what you want to wear when you go to church. I always thought I knew what I wanted to wear. My mother had different opinions. And on Saturday night, she laid out her opinion. And that's what I wore on Sunday. She laid out the works for me to do on Sunday. I was wearing clothes that someone else selected for me. But I wore them. Or something bad happened to me. And it wasn't that I didn't get to go to church. So she laid it out for me, my good works for the day. That's what God has done for you. He's laid it out for you. Let me tell you what else He's done. He's actually enabled you and motivated you to pick up one leg and put it in the pants leg and lift up the other leg, put it in that pants leg and walk out the door. He is enabling you. You're doing it and you're responsible for it. But you're in Christ and He is in you. It's organic and He is working through you to do the good works. He has appointed these works. He's prepared, look what it says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see, the Christian life is not just fire insurance. 
The Christian life is indeed being delivered from the fire and then the Christian life, by God's grace, is a continuing work who takes us through life living for Him. And He never takes His hand off of us. <coughs> he doesn't save us like so many people are taught to think. And you go get baptized and then you say, okay now boys, it's on, it's now on, it's, the burden's now on you. I did my part, now you do your part. No, sir, Bob, he, it's his part here, and it's his part here, and it's his part when we ascend into heaven. He's carrying us through the whole thing. But notice that the works that we do are an inevitable part of our salvation. You can't possibly be a converted man and not also have the good works to do. Why? Because just as God, through Christ, eternally elected you to be His Son... He eternally predestined that you would have good works to do. So, you can be judged either way. God wants to do it. It's one and the same thing. He can judge you based on His own knowledge of whether you're justified through faith. And He can do that. He knows that. He can judge you on the basis of whether you have the new birth. He knows that. Or, He can judge you on the basis of the works that are coming out of that new birth. Because if you're born again, you will have the works. They're always there. It's kind of like if you're a human being, you're breathing. I know this. So if I'm a doctor, all I have to do is get my ear down near your, your mouth and I can tell whether you're breathing. I can pull the stethoscope out and see if your heart's beating and I know you're alive. I don't have to make some magical, mystical thing like, hmm, I believe he's alive. No, I'll go over my stethoscope and I listen to your heart. And someone can say to me, how do you know he's alive? Well, I could say I'm God and I know he's alive. Or I could say, I checked his heart and it's beating. Now, this is what we're dealing with here. God is coming back as the son, son of Man in the person of the second person of the Trinity, gloriously, and He is judging, and He's judging the sheep and the goats. They're going to be separated. He could do it any way He wants to. But here, He's saying, let's look at it from this angle. There will be a difference in the lifestyle. And I'm telling you, just as I can segregate them based on what I already know from election, from the redemption of my Son's blood, or from the work of the Holy Spirit. I know all this. But I can also judge them based on their lifestyles. Because their lifestyles inevitably events what is in their hearts. It's true with us. So now back to Matthew 25. What he's saying here is, first of all, we are being commended for deeds of mercy to Him because He's so integrally related to us. Now, number two under C we will be rewarded with His commendation for our mercy to His brothers. This is what He's ultimately saying. That when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. So He's saying, you want to know how you do a good work for me? Do a good work in one of these six categories for the least of these. Now let's look at this question for a moment. Who are my brothers? Who are the least of these? First of all, notice in verse 40, when he says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, this is the superlative, least, of the same phrase he uses elsewhere when he speaks about these little ones. Remember in Matthew 18? A woe be to the one who causes one of these little ones to stumble. What this phrase is, it's the superlative of that phrase. The littlest ones. He's saying here. The littlest of the little ones. And as we studied that, we, we asked ourselves the question, who are the little ones? You remember that in Matthew 18? 
The little ones are basically his disciples. There's a, there's a repetitive phrase, the, these little ones, he uses several times in Matthew's gospel to speak of his own disciples. That's clearly what he's saying here. In fact, he makes it doubly clear. Whoever has done this to the least of these, the least, the littlest ones of these, my brothers. Now, there are different theories on who he's talking about. Some say he's talking about, first of all, the poor of the world. That these are the least. And so if, if you're uh, into, like I am, uh, relieving the needs of the world's poor, you'll often say that we need to be sure and be sensitive to the least of these. And we call them the least of these. Uh, I've served on the Board of World uh, Relief for nine years, and we talk about the most vulnerable people in the world. Some people would equate that with the least of these. World Vision uses the same sort of language. That's one theory of what Jesus is talking about here. The second theory would be that he's talking about the apostles and Christian missionaries. And the reason is that some scholars will tie this in with Matthew 10, where he talks about uh, our being abused as missionaries uh, to the outside world. Third, some say he's talking here about ethnic Israel, his brothers. And the dispensationalists particularly, if you have a dispensational background, this text would have been interpreted to say that inasmuch as you've done this to Israel, my nation, my chosen people, you've done it unto me. So he's identifying with ethnic Israel. Fourthly, and this is the one that seems clearly to me, me to be what's in the text, is Christ's disciples. And there I've listed several uh, verses in Matthew 10.42, 12.48, 18.5 and 6 and 10 where you see these little ones being discussed. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying these are my brothers. Who are his brothers? Well, you can look in Matthew 12, 48, and you'll see an interesting little description of who his brothers are. Just turn back a few pages. Uh, this is a, a very interesting text. When his mother and brothers were waiting for him outside, he said, he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And in verse 49, he's stretching out his hand. He says uh, toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. And then look at verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Clearly, Jesus teaches over and over again that his siblings are those who are his disciples. That's his family. And clearly, the disciples later teach in the apostles' epistles that his people are Jew and Gentile together who are walking with him. So if you take the phrase, the least of these, these littlest, littlest little ones, and the phrase, my brothers, gentlemen, it's inescapable, it seems to me. He's talking about his disciples. Now, what does that mean? Does this mean that we're not, we're not concerned about the poverty of non-Christians? No, it doesn't mean that. Jesus also told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And here's a man, a Samaritan, who crossed ethnic boundaries and religious boundaries to show amazing mercy. And Jesus says, there's mercy. That's what I'm talking about. So Jesus clearly commends our care for the poor here and around the world, regardless of their ethnic background, regardless of their religious commitments. Christians do this because of Jesus. And then you have the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 saying clearly to us to demonstrate mercy to all, especially to the household of faith, indeed, especially 
to the family of God, but in general to everybody. Sometimes folks will get upset because we seem to be so, care, so concerned about the world. Or some will be so concerned because we're so concerned about downtown Memphis and, and not East Memphis. And gentlemen, what I want to say to you is it's all of the above. The Christian is called to, to be responsible for every square inch of the world in concentric circles as you go out from your own neighborhood. So we care about everybody, but especially the household of faith. That's what he's talking about here. So let us not misuse this text to talk about caring for the poor who are non-Christians. This text is talking about the sheep and the goats being divided on the basis of the evidence in your life as to how you're treating the church of Jesus Christ, your brothers and sisters in your own local church and in other churches that are true churches of Christ. There's evidence in your life, if you're a believer, that you love them. In John's epistle, his first epistle, uh, some scholars will call that epistle the tests of faith because John gives several tests by which we can examine ourselves. First of all, he says you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He appeared in flesh, that He actually took on flesh. If you don't believe that, you're not a believer. That's the first test. Secondly, you must live an ethical life. And if you're not walking in the light then you, if you say you're in the light, you're a liar, he says. He's very clear about it. So that what John is saying is what Jesus is saying here. If you're justified, if you're born again, there's going to be a new lifestyle, and you will live an ethical life. It's a test. If you're not living that life, you don't belong to him. The third test John gives us is loving one another. And he says, if anyone says he loves God, but doesn't love his brother, he is a liar. For how can you love one that you don't see when you don't love the one that you do see? And we are integrally, remember, we're intimately, integrally, organically related to Christ. So if you love Christ, you will, by immediate reflex action, love his brothers and sisters. You'll love the ones he particularly loves. And he especially loves those who put their trust in him. So you will love them. You say, now there's a cultivated virtue. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I had a pastor tell me one time, he said, you know, I I love the unbelievers, but loving the church people, that's cultivated. Man, I've been working on that. (laughs) I understand, but you will cultivate it. And and I can watch you. I see some of you cultivating and learning how to love people. When you get in the church, you get some weird dysfunctions. Uh, Evil works its way out in, in, in real close quarters. I mean, we're trying to get close to each other, and so all of our dysfunctions get more and more painful. And the, the, the beauty of the, of the unbeliever, uh, the unbelieving world, is you can just stay kind of disconnected. You don't keep bumping into these problems unless someone pulls a, a, a gun on you. But when you get into close relationships, all these sinful dysfunctions come out and you begin to get, it's like porcupines trying to get close together at night. It's just, it just hurts. So I understand this. But the reason you love God's people is because you see something of Him in them. Not just by virtue of creation, but you can, actually, you can actually see something of the familiarity of Christ in their bloodstream. And you're charmed by it. And if you're not, you're not charmed by Him. That's the point in this text. Now when you get to Acts chapter 4, I've mentioned that text, verse, uh, chapter 4 verse 32. You see the early church sold their possessions to be sure that no one had a need that was unmet, a legitimate need. 
And that's a huge challenge for us, gentlemen. And with the influence we have in our churches, we have to be sure that our churches are real churches. They're real families. So that we have ways of dealing with our brothers and sisters who are in all kinds of need. I'll leave it at that. Lastly, verses 41 through 46. Jesus will punish the wicked. We've seen this over and again in these parables. He's emphasizing it here. And He will punish in several ways. Number one, with His absence. Then they will say to those on His left, depart from Me. Jonathan Edwards says that our problem if we're wicked is not His absence but His presence. That we would only wish for His absence. Well, I know what he means. He means the presence of God's wrath. So the problem of the wicked is ultimately not God's absence, but His presence. That's the great tragedy of their unbelief. But there's a sense in which they're absent His love and mercy, His family love. Secondly, with His curse. You curse it. There's an announcement. Just as there's an announcement of favor upon you, there's an announcement of disfavor, of cursing and damnation on those who have rejected Him. Thirdly, they will be punished with His wrath. He says, into the eternal fire. As I've said before about the gnashing of teeth. I don't know if it's figurative or literal, but I don't think either one is enjoyable. I don't want anything to do with it. Whatever eternal fire is, I want nothing to do with it. And neither do you want anybody else to have anything to do with it if you love your neighbor as yourself. Fourthly, He'll punish the wicked with His enemies. So the wicked will go the same place that the devil and the angels go. This is an awesome thought that the same lake of fire for the dominion of evil is where the non-Christians will find themselves. Fifthly, the wicked will be punished because of our hard-heartedness. We didn't visit the prisoned, imprisoned brother and sister. We didn't care about the church. Their pain and agony and persecution meant nothing to us. In fact, secretly, we often took delight in it. And this will be our hard-heartedness, that we saw nothing of Christ. It's not that we see Christ in the face of the poor. We see Christ in the face of the church, and particularly the church poor. That's where we see the face of Christ. It's in the redeemed community. It's not the poor in general in this text. And so let's be very careful about our universalistic statements about Jesus being in all the poor. Jesus right here in this text is in the poor persecuted church, the redeemed people of God, and our hard-heartedness has brought on His judgment. And sixthly, the wicked will be punished forever. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And here you have an interesting parallel, don't you? If anyone wants to challenge you on the duration of punishment, just look at this word eternal. It's the same word that he uses for eternal life. Eternal punishment, eternal life. Now, there is debate among Christians, good Christians, about whether we're annihilated and just done away with or whether we actually have endless conscious punishment. As a human being, I could only hope that the former were the case. And I've looked for the arguments. But I look at that one verse, and I have a hard time saying that that would be the case, that we'd just be wiped out and completely eliminated and gone. 
because of the word eternal there. I know it can be interpreted different ways. We don't have time to look at it right now. But it looks as though the parallel for the duration of blessedness in heaven is compared to the duration of the punishment. And so uh, I won't say that we know without any shadow of a doubt that's what it is, but it seems to me that way. And I don't see that I or you really have a right to be presumptuous on this and to think for a moment that maybe our wicked neighbor, the neighbor who doesn't know Christ, because we're all wicked apart from Christ, to think that our wicked neighbor will just have a moment when he'll face terror and then it'll be all over. I, I don't think that's what the text is saying. I think it's a lot worse than that. And the reason is because of this. It's because of God's infinite glory. It's because of the glory of the Son of Man. And when humanity rebelled against Him, they rebelled against an infinite, eternal, unchangeable King. And therefore, our punishment is commensurate with our crime. Well, I hate to leave you in a place like that. That's the reason that we have one more amen next week, looking at one of my favorite texts in all the Bible to conclude our study. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for the revelation of the end, giving us what we need to know in order to live wisely in this life. Help us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Help us to live in light of the glorious judgment of Jesus, the Son of Man. And Lord, may we all here give our lives to Jesus Christ fully and await eagerly those blessed words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come, enter into the joy of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.